Guys, I'm cheating by getting another announcement in before the message. So apologies sort of for that. Hey, and before I do, uh, God can do all things, you know, from the Scripture. God. So Larry, just as we assume that you're going to be here early next week. I want to laugh on one hand, but I'm believing God that people will actually be here early, on time, in seats, you know? I don't know. That's what went through my mind. So hopefully we'll all be here early. Yeah, uh-huh. this group. Hey, something else. He talked about sitting in front, filling in from the front back. Let me suggest that's a good pattern for any or every Sunday, especially for families with little kids. Sitting in the back is certainly a lot handier. You'll be glad if they're behind you and not in front of you if they have to get out. And it's certainly a courtesy just for other folks who maybe didn't get up quite on time to come in too. So as many of us as can fill in timely up front from the front back. And then guys, this is for guys 16 years and up, and this is just an FYI. You could actually take your smartphones out right now. I would ask you to, seriously, take your smartphones out right now and log this in Friday night, October 19th, Saturday morning through about 1, 1.30, Saturday afternoon, the 20th. That'll be the men's advance for this year. I am Christ's man. What does that look like? We've got four talks. If you're here last year, it was the most successful men's advance we've had. We had more people, and we seemed to have a better time. It was here. It was easier to come and go. Some folks were able to come that wouldn't have otherwise. So it's simple. There's games and treats Friday night. We'll have a talk on purity. There's breakfast. There's great barbecue lunch and a panel discussion that will close us out Saturday afternoon. And in between, there's talks on uh, what are the underlying assumptions that you and I carry, perhaps unconsciously, guys, by which we form our decisions, the decisions that make our lives. How do we uh, determine what those are and maybe shape what it is that's shaping us? That's another talk. And then the value that God puts on our labors, our careers, our work, is what will close that out and panel discussion at the end of all that. So I hope you'll come. Hope every guy here will come 16 years and up. Okay, so let's just get it on your calendar and we'll be good from there. Okay, to the message. Mighty oaks from little acorns grow. It, may, it sounds trite, but it's really, really true. You know, it's amazing that in the seed, which is an acorn, if you see one on the ground, they're very small, they're insignificant, they're everywhere. Of course, this time of year, that a tree as magnificent and large and spreading as a big oak tree comes from that little seed. It's sort of staggering, but the life of a thing is in the seed that the seed has the potential for everything that will come so that if you have a seed you have all the potential that that seed has it's not enough to look at the seed and say that's the thing because no that's just the start of a thing and that acorns when planted they're going to slowly produce that oak tree and it's it's not always easy to know where is the thing going you know, if you go to the pet store, you can get a little kitten, and that little kitten is going to become a cat, a grown-up cat. And you think, I, I want a kitten, but they don't stay kittens or puppies. You know, God made all dogs cute as puppies because you wouldn't get the ugly ones if you knew what they, if that's what they looked like when you started, right? So it's the seed it becomes that thing. And, and the truth is, too, that one sin leads to another. And this is the bottom line. Latent in any sin, in any sin, is every sin. The possibility for every sin that you think you would never do is actually possible in seed form in any sin you and I are willing to do. 
So what we want to do this morning is look at sin, take it seriously, perhaps in a way we haven't before. Listen to this. This is a story Thomas Friedman tells. He's a pretty well-known political commentator and newspaper guy, but he tells this. An old Bedouin legend goes like this. An elderly leader thought that by eating turkey, he could restore his virility. So, and parents, you can tell your kids about that later. So he bought, he bought a turkey. He kept it by his tent, stuffed it with food every day. One day, someone stole his turkey. The Bedouin elder called his sons together and he told them, boys, we're in great danger. Someone has stolen my turkey. Father, the sons answered, what do you need a turkey for? Never mind, he answered. Maybe what you say to your kids when they ask you about virility. Just get me back my turkey. But the sons ignored him, and a month later, someone stole the old man's camel. What should we do, the sons asked. Can you guess? Find my turkey. Dad answered. But the sons did nothing, and a few weeks later, the man's daughter was raped. The father said to his sons, it's all because of the turkey. When they saw that they could take my turkey, we lost everything. That's true. Suddenly the funny turns serious when you hear the last line. Dad understood if the first thing occurs, anything can follow afterwards. And guys, that acorns produce oak trees, it can't be any other way. And one sin, the sins that you and I allow to sort of bear fruit, to put roots down, to grow into our lives, they'll become things you would never have imagined. They'll take you places you, would, you said you would never go. They'll allow you to do things you thought you were incapable of. Because in any sin is the latent possibility of every sin. That's the lesson we want to take home this morning. We're in our Heroes and Villains series. This is the fourth. We've looked at Jesus, the superhero over all heroes, hero of faith. Faith was the model of heroes. We looked at Satan, the villain over all villains, faithlessness, a proud refusal to accept the place and the purpose God had in his life. And basically we see that after that, that we follow one of those two models, faithfulness towards God, really filling up the time and the place God's given us, or faithlessness towards God, calling our shots our way. Last week we looked at Abel and we really saw he has very little ink in scripture. There's not a lot to tell about his story, but what's there is significant. And we said basically, scripture said Abel was a worshiper of God. He was faithful in worshiping God. And he's praised for that in the text in Genesis 4, later in he, he, uh, Hebrews 11:4, And Jesus always says, uh, Abel's death, his blood, was the first righteous blood shed on the earth. He's praised there again. So he, he came to God on God's terms in that act of worship. He worshiped God faithfully. And the text there in Genesis 4 said, God looked with favor, with acceptance on Abel, and on his offering. So today we're going to look at Abel's brother, as you can imagine, Cain. And what we're going to see is the opposite. We're going to look at Cain and his descendant, Lamech. And we'll see that sin unrepented of leads to more sin. Acorns of sin in worship will lead to the oak tree of murder. Most of us tend to minimize sin. And by the way, we're talking about worship today. It's kind of a key term coming to God in worship uh, inappropriately but it's really the thought of coming to God at all uh, how do we approach God do we approach God on our terms or on his terms and if you remember 
just by way of another reference, in 1 Samuel 15, God had told King Saul to do something, and he didn't. He did it his way. He gave God his version of obedience. And when Samuel confronts him, Samuel tells him, Saul, rebellion is like witchcraft. See, you rebelled against God. You didn't do what God said. God says that's like witchcraft. He said presumption. Now, we don't consider presumption usually a very big deal. But he said presumption is like idolatry. Now, if you'd said to King Saul, are you an idolater or do you practice witchcraft? I'm sure at the time you would have said, no way, never. But of course, he becomes an idolater and he practices witchcraft before he's done. So that's what we, we look out for the little sins because the little sins become big ones. So we're going to be in Genesis 4. And if you want, this is a lengthier passage than I normally read. I'll read from verses 3 through 24. I'll cut out a couple for clarity and time's sake. You can close your eyes and relax and imagine this in your mind's eye, or you can read along in the text with me. So Genesis 4, starting at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard, looked with favor, for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard, no favor, unacceptable. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Do the right thing. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you or it's against you. But you must rule over it. Well, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? And guys, as you hear this, these are the words. The whole scene echoes Genesis 3 and the first sin of Adam and Eve. The questions and the language, it's all the same. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Guys, naysayers often come to this text to say, who was around to have killed Cain? And I hope you know, in the Genesis accounts, God only records the births that are important to the story. We have no idea how many children, how many people there were on the earth at this time. Cain could have had hundreds, literally, of siblings. He could have had nieces, grandnieces, and nephews. We don't know. But there's plenty of people on the earth that Cain is afraid will harm him because of what he's done to his brother. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then listen, this language is pathetic. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In the Old Testament especially, if someone's going east, it's almost always leaving the place of blessing. 
Well, Cain knew his wife. Cain's wife, of course, would have been either a sibling or a niece or grandniece again. We don't know. And she conceived and bore Enoch. Scooting ahead, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Mahushael, and Mahushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Skipping ahead to verse 23, and Lamech said this to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So in this brief scripture, you're going from Cain to his descendant Lamech. And we'll start with Cain, and then we'll wind up on Lamech. Now Cain's acorn, and this is important, Cain's acorn, the sin that starts this, is coming to God on his own terms in, in that supposed act of worship where he brings to God the fruit of the ground. The text doesn't say again what God had required, but Cain knew what God required and he didn't do it. He comes to God on his own terms. And God considered that a very serious thing. Now guys, on one hand, this sounds to us like so insignificant, you gotta be kidding. So Cain would be like lots of people today who are in church on Sunday morning. And we'd say, well, that looks like a good thing. Cain's worshiping God. They're at church. They're in a temple. They're at synagogue. And we say, well, that's good. They're good people. They're doing good things. They're going to church. But if they're doing it as they see fit and not as God has instructed, which is by faith in Christ, then it's not an act of worship. And they're coming to God in an insulting way, saying we'll do it our way, and that's good enough. And God says, well, no, it's not. So let me march you through a little bit of history just to give you a taste of how serious God takes it that we come to him on his terms. <clears throat> when God gives the law, he makes Moses' brother Aaron the high priest. And Aaron has a couple of sons, Hoff, or excuse me, Nadab and Abihu. And they go to worship God. Guys, they're, <laughs> they're the right guys, they're in the right place, and they're doing the wrong thing. Because they're offering, it says strange fire, the text says, we don't, in fact, know exactly what that means. They offer to God strange fire. And what happens? The text says fire erupts and kills them on the spot. They're coming to God. They're the right guys. They're in the right place, but they're doing it their way. And God consumes them in the moment. It goes no further than that. Now, that sounds rather extreme, but it continues. When you get later into the period of the judges and you've got another high priest, Eli, he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And these guys, the scripture calls them sons of Belial. And that means they're worthless. They're morally worthless. And they are so disrespectful of God and his things at the tabernacle. They take what they want. They sleep around with the women. And God says to Eli, I'm going to kill both of your sons on the same day as a judgment against you and your family. And the Philistines kill them the same day that Saul is killed because they disrespected God, because they came to God and they used God's things their way. When you get to the king Uzziah, Uzziah was one of Judah's great kings. And he's famous, I think, for a phrase in Isaiah 6. Most of us, you probably don't know his story, but you probably know Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. 
Uzziah started really well. He was a boy king at 16 and everything went his way and he honored God and life was grand until the text is in Chronicles, not Kings, until it says that pride rose up in his heart and basically he thought, I'm as good as the priests. And so he came in, he went into the holy place to offer incense on the altar of incense. And the priests are telling him, don't do this, get out. They're trying to push him out and he won't have it. He says, I'm the king and I'll do what I want. He goes to the altar and God strikes him with leprosy on the spot. He lives the rest of his life as a leper and he dies a leper. Pretty severe. God's king, but he wasn't a priest. He thought he could come to God on his own terms. Now, some people make the mistake, and maybe you've grown up hearing this, that the God of the Old Testament is vengeful and wrathful, and the God of the New Testament is, is uh, lovey-dovey, meek and mild Jesus and Yahweh, not so much. But they're the same. And the grace and the mercy and the severity and judgment is reflected in both Testaments. And so when you get to the birth of the church in Acts 5, you've got a variation of the same theme happening here. Because there's a husband and a wife, and they think... They're going to use the worship of God through their financial giving to make much of themselves. Uh, because Barnabas, man, everybody thinks well of Barnabas because he gave this stuff. So we're going to do what Barnabas did bigger and people will really think highly of us. And they lied about what they were doing as well. And God struck them both dead. They came to God. They abused God in his worship or coming to God on their own terms. And in each of these cases, God simply ended their life or struck one with leprosy. So how we come to God and how we would propose to worship God is in fact a big deal. And God takes it very seriously if we say we're good enough to come as we see fit or we're good enough to offer you worship as we deem appropriate. And God simply says with an exclamation mark, no way. It's not what he'll accept. These instances are like Cain's worship. They are deficient. They are sinful. They are an insult to God. He does not approve of them. And I would say that's true of much of our worship, around, our worship in quotation marks, around the world today. You know, people in the future in absolute rejection of Christ will still be worshiping. But they're not worshiping God. You'll see that in the book of Revelation. We said this last week and it bears repeating today. And again, I think because it's so counterintuitive. We think good people do good things and a good God says that's okay. And that's just not it. God's good, but he's holy. And he says it's his way or it's not, it's not at all. Any attempt to worship our maker that's not based on the atoning sacrifice as Jesus, in which we don't come to the Father through faith in the Son, is not an act of worship. It's not a good thing. God does not approve it. It's merely another act of idolatry or rebellion. We come to God on his terms, his way, or we don't come at all. Now, in contrast to that, Philippians 3 is a text that sort of contrasts a Jewish claim to worship post-Christ, a Christ-rejecting Judaism, uh, with the new worship, the new way of worship, if you will, that was instituted in the church. And so this is what Paul says, you and I today, just by way of application. First, he says, we are the circumcision. So remember, Paul's contrasting the church with Judaism. And the big thing about Jews were, the men were circumcised. And so they would say, we're of the circumcision. We're of God's house. We're God's people. Well, now Paul says, we're the circumcision, having nothing to do with the physical circumcision. 
Romans 2, he says it's a circumcision of the heart. There's been repentance and there's been restoration on Christ's atoning sacrifice. And we've now come to the Father through faith in the Son. We're the circumcision. Guys, if, you, if this hasn't happened for you yet, you're not a worshiper. If you've not come to the Father through faith in the Son, you're not a Christian, you're not saved, you cannot worship God. The only thing for us to do in that situation is to repent of our waywardness and say, God, I accept the forgiveness freely offered to me in Christ. I understand I'm a sinner. My worship is deficient. I come to you through faith in the Son. Then we're of the circumcision. We're of God's household. We can worship and praise our Father. The second thing he says is we worship by the Spirit. Spiritually dead people can't worship. We're spiritually alive now. Now we worship by the power of the Holy Spirit. We talked about this last week with Abel. We're spiritually alive through faith in Christ. We're energized by the Holy Spirit to offer worship that's acceptable to God. We're spiritual people energized by the Holy Spirit to worship as God sees fit. This is good. We glory in Christ Jesus. We offer the, the fruits, if you will, the perfections of Jesus is we, what we offer to the Father. You know, Abel brought the lamb, but we said the lamb was a precursor. It was a picture of Christ himself. What you and I do most fully in worship is we offer the perfections of Jesus back to the Father. We glory in Christ. It's not about us. It's not what we bring. It's not our money, our looks, our success. It's none of that. We glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh, nothing that we bring. None of that makes any difference. Christ is the thing. We worship the Father through faith in the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So here's some thoughts on avoiding deficient worship. So if we're born again, we can worship God and we're called to. But here's some things to think about. The first thing is this, and primarily I'm thinking about Sunday morning, but worshipers, remember worship for Christians is supposed to be 24-7. For breathing, we should be worshiping as an act of the will. The first thing is in humility, worship is about God and not us. I think your study sheet has the reference from Isaiah 66-2, where God said, it's to this one that I will look. He's humble, he's contrite, and he trembles at my word. He, he knows who he is before me. So when he comes before me, there's humility. And he takes my word seriously. That means he takes me seriously. So we come in humility. It's about God. It's not about us. One of the liberating things in corporate worship is to know it's about God and not about us. You know, sometimes in the same worship service, you'll have one person raising their hands. By the way, raising the hands is a good thing. First Timothy 2 says, men raise up holy hands. It shows God there's nothing. We're hiding nothing. Raise up holy hands without wrath or dissension. But some of us will raise hands and we're saying to ourselves, I hope someone notices I'm spiritual. My hands are up. It's about me. It's not about God. Others of us can't raise our hands because if we do, someone might see us. It's about me. In either way. So the, the, all that stuff is, is not the point. The point is it's about God. So when we praise, guys, it could be quiet. Others could be singing and you could be quietly praying. That's okay. Or it can be face down on the floor. Or it can be standing or sitting. But the issue is God, not us. We glory in Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh. So we come humbly. The other thing is with an examined heart, we usually pause at the end of announcements. And they'll say, take a moment. Clear your heart, clear your mind. Guys, that's a time to confess known sin. 
It's a time to confess known sin. Now, usually when we do the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11 is mentioned. It's like before you partake of the Lord's Supper, hey, it's good to examine yourself and eat, eat the bread, drink the cup in a worthy manner. But we should do this anytime. And especially if we're coming to worship with other brothers and sisters. What you'll find is if I've got unrepented, unconfessed sin going on, it's hard. <laughs> we'll give just a moment. Aren't you glad they're in the last row? By the way, <laughs> I think Jelena pinched him, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Uh, with an examined heart, uh, what you'll find is that when there's sin that's unconfessed or unrepented of, it dulls us. It's harder to hear God. It's harder to connect. It's harder to feel close. It's certainly harder to declare what's true about him. So one of the things we want to do is simply confess the things that would come between God and us in that fellowship and worship. The third is this, and by the way, you could probably come up with some others. It's to come at peace with others. There's a verse in Romans 12:18 that says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. That's great for two reasons. It recognizes you and I don't control other people. So you might try to be at peace with others and they don't want to be at peace with you. Peace doesn't exist. But, but don't let it be because it's on your side that you're maintaining some form of hostility. So as far as it depends on you, be at peace. And that's what we want to bring in. Can you imagine, or if you're a parent, maybe you've seen this, two kids come to you, they're fighting with each other and they want you to intervene. And you know what? You want to spank both of them. Because you're like, why aren't you treating each other right? I don't want to be your advocate. I want you to do right by each other. Then you come and talk to me. So we want to come with peace towards each other. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, I'll mention here, but I'm going to bring it up again for another reason. Uh, if you're ready to worship, Jesus says, and you remember, you're right there at the altar. You're right there. You're right here Sunday morning. And you remember that your brother or your sister, someone else has something against you. Stop what you're doing. Go and make it right with them first. The thought is this. You've sinned against someone. You know it and they know it. And it's brought a breach in your relationship. And God says, deal with that first, then come and worship. So we're coming with peace between ourselves and others. And the last is to bring the fruit of our own personal devotion. I mean this. You'll find that worshiping on Sunday morning is a lot easier if you were a worshiper Monday through Saturday. And generally what I'm thinking of is just taking a moment ideally in the morning where we say, God, you're the most important thing in my life today. And so I spend the first amount of time I have with you. I'm listening to you in your word. I'm in your word. Guys, I've been meditating in Psalms. I'm in the 80s and the 90s. And I can't tell you how good it's been. And I've just been crawling through, looking at words and meanings. And I have just been so encouraged every morning. And I'm doing nothing, no hard work. I'm just taking a little bit of time. I'm in the book. And God's showing me things I haven't seen before. And I'm drawn near to him. And we're praying. And that's where we're unloading our hearts to God. Tell them the things that concern us. We're praying for other people as well. But what you'll find is if you're a worshiper Monday through Saturday, worshiping on Sunday is just like falling off a chair. It's what we do. If you're not a worshiper through the rest of the week, it's pretty oxymoronic to try and be a Sunday-only worshiper. So we want to bring the fruit of our own devotion. So we want to avoid the scenes of 
you can call it deficient worship or you can call it of approaching God on our own terms. We want to avoid that. It's not a little thing. It's a big thing. And we want to go on from there and we want to start looking at Cain and this whole issue of murder and where that's going to go. So the sin, Cain's initial sin, which he didn't think apparently was a big deal, is what led eventually to murder. So walk through this with me. Uh, this is on your study sheet. What you see first, so uh, Adam and Eve sin. So the kids are born in death. We get that. But in their individual stories, this is what happens. So the first seed of Cain's sin was coming to God on his own terms. It was that false act of worship, a form of idolatry, worshiping God as he saw fit. That was the acorn. But he waters that because second, he hardens himself to God's reproof. God said, it doesn't have to be this way. I, I can look on you and your gift with favor if you'll simply do what you know you're supposed to. And Cain refuses. He hardens himself. He waters the acorn, if you will. Third, he hardened his heart towards his brother. Don't know what happened in that conversation, but Cain is descending. And by the way, what did Abel ever do to Cain? Is Abel the problem? Abel's not the problem. You guys ever come home when you're mad and my phrase is kick the dog? Yell at your wife, yell at the kids, yell at your mom. You're, you're at odds with the world. That has nothing to do with them. What, what did Abel do? He did nothing. Cain is angry at God, but he's taking it out. He's hardening his heart towards his brother. And then last, he murders Abel. You see a progression here. Faithlessness towards God grew into the fruit of the murder. You've got the acorn and the oak tree. And as odd as it seems, Jesus connects worship or coming to God inappropriately with murder in that Matthew 5 Sermon on the Mount passage as well. Because there he says, you have been told, don't murder. If you murder, you're going to be subject to judgment. But now I'm telling you, if you have anger in your heart, this is sinful anger, bitterness, towards your brother, you're liable to judgment as well. And right after that, he says, and if you're at the altar worshiping, and remember your brother has something against you, leave. You've got murder and worship side by side, parallel thoughts in Matthew 5. They're not disconnected. They're intimately connected. Now, it sounds odd if you say, is it really equivocal, Mike? Is, is missing God in worship really equivocal to murder? And you say, well, the, the ties aren't necessarily obvious, but neither is the tie between an acorn and an oak tree. But, but consider what Jesus said in John 16 too. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. So think about this for just a minute. Israel's waiting for God to show up. Millennia. And God shows up. And God's rejected. And Jesus says, if they reject me, they'll reject you. If they accept my word, they'll accept your word. But if they murder Jesus, what will they do to his followers? They'll murder him too. He'll think he's offering service to God. Service is worship. And worship is service. They'll murder you and think they're offering service to God. And you see that in Acts 7 with Stephen, the first martyr. The religious leaders stone him just like they put Jesus to death. They execute Stephen. You see exactly the same thing going on. Now think about this for a minute. Worship 
and murder. Approaching God in a false way and murder. Think of this. The Jews who rejected Jesus murdered his followers and called it worship. Because that's in the book. That's in the text. So just go a little further on in history and what do you see? So the European crusaders, they said they believed in Jesus. But they didn't, clearly, by their actions. Because they murdered Jews. They murdered Muslims. And by the way, they murdered fellow Christians. Eastern Orthodox Christians. And guess what? And they said that was a good thing too. And then, Muslims, historically and today, what's going on with them? Well, they reject Jesus. So they approach God as it seems best to them. They reject Jesus, and what do they do? Well, they murder Jews, and they murder Christians. And by the way, they, may, they murder Muslims that they don't think measure up to their brand of Islam, and they call it worship. It's not far-fetched to say the way we approach God on His terms or ours leads either to glorious worship of God on one hand or absolute demonic murder on the other. And what you have is, I've rejected God as He is, and now I reject His image in His image bearers. And I'm willing to do whatever I want with them. So they are intimately connected. And every sin is latent in any sin. That's the message. That's the lesson of Cain, at least for me. Now, I want you to notice the progression. And this is where we move to Lamech. In Genesis 4, God gives us Cain's story down to his descendant, Lamech. And Lamech says, I've killed a man for wounding me. I've killed a young man for striking me. Yeah, Cain got vengeance sevenfold, mine 70 times 7. So now Cain's descendant is boasting in the act for which his grandsire was kicked out of God's presence. So what, what Cain sort of lamented after the fact and the punishment's too great is now what his descendant Lamech boasts in. And what you've got is the, the full-blown fruit, if you will. The acorn has grown into the oak tree. And approaching God in his own terms has now become that Lamech says, I'll do whatever I want to whoever I want, and I'll take vengeance as many times as I see fit. Absolute idolatry, and absolutely a spirit of vengeance and murder. Cain's line is developed so that we can see where that thing goes. Now, <clears throat> if you look at this for just a minute, following the heroes and the villains, there's a reason God takes us to the seventh generation from creation in Cain's line to Lamech. Now you know that in the scripture, seven represents a complete cycle. It's completeness, a, a week is over, or God prophesies in weeks of years, sevens of sevens, a complete cycle. And what do you see in Lamech? You see the full-blown development of the man of sin, the deficient man, the one who comes to God as he sees fit on his own terms. And basically you see this spirit of murder what happens to Cain's physical line? They all die at the flood. They're all gone at the flood. And by the way, what does the world look like before the flood? It's filled with violence. The fruit of Cain started with worship, ended at murder. 
Now it's full-blown. Murder and violence is what the earth was filled with when God judges it at the flood. Cain's line is entirely removed at the flood, physically. Now spiritually, we would say that same spirit that energized Cain and Lamech is certainly alive and well in the world today. And when you read in Revelation about the, the Antichrist and his workings, and by the way, the people that follow him, it's fascinating. Guys, it doesn't matter what God does in his judgments in the Great Tribulation. The texts are on your sheet in Revelation. It says that they refuse to repent. And they're killing God's faithful followers. Revelation 20, I think it's verse 4. The spirit of Cain and Lamech is alive in, world, in the world today. Spiritually, his physical line ended. But his spiritual line ends with Antichrist. Now, I'm, I'm doing something a little unfair, but that's just the way it is because I wanted to make this point. We're not getting into the story of Enoch or Seth for that matter, but I want to bring them up because they provide the contrast. So Lamech is the seventh from creation in Cain's line, but Enoch is the seventh from creation in Seth's line. Now, if you remember, Eve prays that God will replace Abel. And Seth is the answer to that prayer. And from Seth's line, seventh generation from creation, comes Enoch. And in Genesis 5, Enoch is described as walking with God. He's in relationship with God. It's Enoch's line through Noah that goes through the flood. They survive. It's Enoch's spiritual line, if you will, that ultimately leads to Christ. Physically, Christ comes from Enoch. And spiritually, if you will, the spirit of faith in God, of coming to God on God's terms, if you will, leads to Jesus, to the Christ, to the Messiah. Enoch, it says in Genesis 5, it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. He's just gone. Now that sounds familiar. I hope it does for two reasons for us as believers today. Jesus walked with God on the earth after his resurrection and he was not because God took him, Acts 1, 11. Same thing. And Christians alive on the earth at some point walk with God and they will be not because Christ will take them at the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4. So what you've got is you've got a very intentional contrast God puts up there between Cain and Lamech and their spirit, come to God on our own terms, and sorry, we didn't go through their stories, but Seth and Enoch are the counterpoint to that. So let me ask you a couple of things as we wind down. Uh, how, how do we respond when God reproves us for sin? Maybe a little sin or <laughs> when someone else calls us on a sin. How do we respond? God called Cain on his sin and Cain said, I'm not having it. My way's good enough. How do we respond? How do we think of the little sins? So every sin in some ways is not equal. Some sins are greater, especially in the repercussions of some sins. But again, every sin is potential in any sin. What, how do we take, what's our thought towards our little sins? What do we think of our little sins? Are we willing to pull them up by the roots and cut off the possibility of where they may go and what they may develop into? Or do we say it's not a big deal? I'm okay as I am, and this will be okay. Because that really, you, you got to look out for that response, absolutely. 
So if we would avoid Cain's murderous spirit, we've got to avoid his deficient worship. If we would avoid the act of murder, we put to death the sin of unholy anger. If we would avoid adultery, avoid pornography. If we would avoid cursing others, avoid idle words. We've got to be willing to put the little sins to death or to uproot them before they develop into something that we never would have thought would have come. Mighty, mighty oak trees from little acorns. Well, stand with me if you would, and the worship team's going to come up, and uh, we'll close again with a corporate prayer. This is from Psalm 86, verse 8 through 12. And it talks about worshiping God, talks about all the nations coming to worship God too, and that's certainly happening today in the church. So let's pray this together and I'll flip through for that next slide in just a second. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Amen.